Father God, we just give you thanks this morning just to be able to, to come together. Thank you for the breath of life to be able to make it here, like Paula said, even to, to uh, worship in community. We pray for those who weren't able to, to even make it out of bed this morning, Lord, for various and sundry reasons. And we ask that your presence would be made known and manifest in their lives in a very powerful way this morning. Thank you for the truth of your word. And, and I ask now, as, as, we, as we open it up, as we get together and we reason together from the scriptures, um, what we're doing um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says, that we're taking spiritual thoughts with spiritual words and that the natural man can't understand those things. And so I'm asking for your spirit to come and to keep us from error and to commune with us and to lead us into truth and encourage our hearts and and, um, bring correction and reproof and equip us, Lord, even as an army would be equipped so that we would be everything that you would be, like the scripture says, that we would be adequate for the work which you have called us to do, even uh, what you have prepared beforehand that we should walk in. Um, and so we ask that your word would be magnified and that you would visit us now in this hour um, as we take time to look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I have a, uh, today, um, I had gotten an email from the church office and they were looking for a scripture passage to use and I couldn't really... Uh, this is going to be more of a topical sort of a message, and so I really didn't settle on any one particular message. So I hope you brought your Bibles, because, um, I, and I did put a couple of the more key passages on the handout to help a little bit, um, but it's kind of a, more of a survey uh, of a situation. And where I want to start is in John chapter 4, where uh, Jesus actually, and you know the story, really famous story, where he ends up in Samaria, and he meets a woman there at the well. The disciples kind of take off. Uh, they go into town maybe to get some food, and Jesus stays at the well, and she shows up at the well in the middle of the day, and they begin to have this conversation. And uh, he actually tells her some things about herself that, and, and then tries to do like a one-up on him. He's like, well, let's not talk about me. Let's talk about something else. And uh, one of the things that she wanted to talk about was, she goes, you know, here in Samaria, we worship in one way, but you being a Jew in Jerusalem, you guys actually worship in a whole different way. So, you know, who's right? Who's right? You know, should we worship like this or should we worship like that? And uh, in John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, Jesus actually shares some phenomenal truths with her um, that I want to go over real quick. And it says, Jesus says to her that the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. I mean, it's a phenomenal idea. Like, He's, he's opening up the door and He's saying, yeah, in Jerusalem, we worship this way. And, and we're in Jerusalem, there's a temple there. It's actually the second temple. And before that, Moses had received uh, the ordinances for worship and they built the tabernacle and they had the Ark of the Covenant and they would do morning and evening sacrifices there and they would gather for feast days as God had commanded the Passover and, and other feasts that they would gather for uh, throughout the time. And the people in Samaria were worshiping in a whole different way. And then Jesus says, look it, what God is really desiring is a whole different thing. In fact, these are all just shadows and types of what God is really after. God is really after uh, people. Actually, he's seeking after people who would worship him 
in spirit and in truth. In fact, if you, if you go back even to the time when the Israelites were, when Joseph actually moved his whole family into Israel, and they were there for 430 years, and it was, I mean, it was longer than the United States has, has even been around right now. And eventually, you remember it said that the Pharaoh rose up that didn't remember Joseph, and the people were enslaved, and then God brings Moses and raises Moses up, and, and he delivers them out of Egypt in this amazing demonstration of power that we still actually talk about today. We're still writing songs about it today, which is interesting when you look back in Exodus where God said, this is the reason why I'm doing it, to increase my fame throughout the earth, and we still talk about it. And then he goes up on the mountain and receives the commandments. And um, we approach the commandments usually in this day and age from the topic of that we cannot be justified on the basis of keeping the law, which is totally true. But I want to say that God's heart at the center, even of the commandments, which are holy and righteous and good, is to actually create a people that were separated, a people that were called by his own name. And he has this covenant love with them, you know, where he's like, look at, I love you and I will be your God and you will be my people and we will enter into covenant with, with one another and you will be, you will demonstrate my character through your people. And so then he displays his character through the law. Now, of course, the challenge with the law is that the law didn't come along with any sort of power to actually keep it. But think about some of the ideas. I mean, even down to basic ideas. Like, for example, God would say, if you own land, and you're going to harvest from that land, then as you're going through the fields, don't go back through the field a second time and then clean up all the stuff that dropped on the ground when you were harvesting the first time. Because I want you to leave it there for the widow and for the orphan and for the sojourner who comes into town. In other words, if someone comes into the land of Israel... God wants to show them his sort of patience and love and care. And, and, and he's like, I want to care for them and I want to create a people who's going to care beyond themselves. I want them to look like me. I want you to look like me. And so that's part of the heart of what God is doing. Even in the Old Testament, his passion was for that. I want you to love mercy and to, and to walk justly and to cling to me and to follow me and to worship me. And don't give your worship to other people because we're in a, a covenant relationship. That would be like a husband giving his body to another person. I don't want you to do that. I want us to be unified in a relationship in such a way where you begin as my people to take on my attributes. Now, unfortunately, as I said, the law didn't have that ability, but that never changed God's heart to seek after a people that would clearly demonstrate it. Now, the beauty of the new covenant is that um, Jesus came and what the law could not do, he did in his body. And now the promise of the Holy Spirit has come to fulfill in us what we could not do. And so now we actually have the ability, once the promise of the Spirit has come within the new covenant, to begin to live and to change and to transform into a people that would worship God in spirit and in truth. God is so serious about creating a people. He even said in the Old Testament in some of the promises where he was like, look it, I'm going to remove your heart of stone and I'm going to place within you a heart of flesh. I'm going to put my spirit in you so that I will cause you to walk in my ways. In other words, he's so serious 
about creating a people that will reflect who he is on the earth, that he was no longer going to leave it up to frail human beings to do it, but rather he was going to create an alien invasion, if you will. Uh, at sci-fi, all is shadows of the story, of the truth of what's happening, where God is invading and conquering men and women all around the world and creating a unique people that stands out from all the rest of the world, living out the, the character and the beauty and the love and the grace and the holiness of God. And this is what he's after. And I don't know about you, but I want to be one of those true worshipers. You know what I'm talking about? Like when, when, when Jesus says that God is seeking after people who would worship him in spirit and in truth, I want to be one. I want to be in that category. I don't want to be left out from that. I want to be in there. Now, what I'm going to say today is I, I definitely cannot say exhaustively what I think that actually means. I have some ideas, and today we're going to embark, embark on one small, tiny aspect that needs to be put into the mass of all that God is, but it's trying to explain God. But I want to be that sort of a true worshiper. And don't you want, as well, to live in a community, a community of believers that have that passion at their heart as well? You know, a community of one another that says, you know what? I want to be, individually, we say, I want to be a person who is going to worship God in spirit and in truth, and I want to dwell and to live in a community of, of people who desire to worship God in spirit and in truth. And not only that, but I also want to be in a community that beckons and woos people into this life, into this life that reflects the beauty and the glory of God. The Father is seeking such people to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Today I want to look at one, and, it, and I'm just going to be honest with you straight up front, it's actually a difficult topic. It's one that's not taken on very frequently. It's one that we shy away from, but it is one, I think, that if we're going to live in a manner where we're going to be worshipers in spirit and in truth, it's also central to our lives as Christ followers, as, a, as individuals, not only that, but also as a community, and that is the topic of repentance, okay? The topic of repentance. Now, I want to look, I want to just give a, before we jump into that, I'm going to back up and talk about salvation as a whole and three aspects of salvation, namely the first being justification, right? Justification. That is that the act of God declaring us to be not guilty on the basis of our entrusting ourselves into the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So we have verses like this in Romans 3, that we have been justified or declared not guilty by His grace through faith as a gift. Our justification comes to us as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In Romans 5.1, it would say that it is um, on the basis of our faith we have been declared not guilty. We have been justified on the basis of our faith. That our sins, that human and individual human sins can be removed from them as far as the east is from the west. We can be declared not guilty simply on the basis of our faith. It's a judicial term that has to do with the fact that we will no longer stand before the Lord and be punished for our sins because Christ became a curse for us so that the curse can be removed from us. That's in Galatians. Beautiful, beautiful story. Then there's another aspect of of salvation, which is sanctification, which has the idea of us being set apart. This is where I'm going to dwell today. Being set apart. That, that God is in the process of saving us and setting us apart 
both as individuals and then also as a community, that he is setting us apart. Jesus, in John chapter 17, when he was praying, he said, Lord, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. He's, he's asking the Father, I want you to take my followers and I want you to set them apart. And the process of which, that, the way that God does that is through truth. It's an invasion of truth. So we have stuff like in the book of Hebrews that says that the word of God, which is truth, is sharper than a two-edged sword. And that it can pierce through to the dividing of joints and marrow. To, to divide between soul and spirit. That it can actually, the word of God has the ability, when it washes over us, when we handle it, when we commune with it, that it has the ability to judge the thoughts and intentions of our heart. And in that process, God is actually setting us apart by his truth. And there's more to it than that because the Holy Spirit now um, is the reminder of the truth, brings stuff to our remembrance, applies it, helps us to understand it. I prayed First Corinthians chapter 2 that the, the things that we're talking about are spiritual thoughts and spiritual words that require spiritual illumination to fully understand. Our natural man can't, can't understand. So sanctification. Um, there's also some other pictures that the New Testament gives about Christ sanctifying the church. One of them is in Ephesians chapter 5, specifically in the arena of talking about a husband and a wife. It says that Jesus himself actually gave himself up to sanctify the church, to set her apart, having cleansed her by the washing of the word. So again, this idea of sanctification has this idea of washing. Um, you have this idea in John chapter 13 when, when Jesus gets out, gets out the basin and the towel and he goes to wash their feet. And Peter's like, look, it, I don't want you to wash my feet. And Jesus said, no, uh, you're, you know, uh, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have any part with me. And then Peter's like, well, then wash my head and my whole body also. And he goes, no, you're already clean, but you just need to have your feet washed. And there's this idea of him setting us apart, um, that he's making the church to be blameless through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Sanctification is also part of God's will. In First Thessalonians it says, and sometimes we're like, well, what is God's will for me? And it says clearly, this is the will of God your sanctification. Now, it goes on to say specifically in that arena that you abstain from sexual immorality. But the idea, the global idea that I want to get apart here is that God is setting apart people who actually, through his, through his presence in the lives of people, live in a different way. We live in a different way. We begin to look more and more like Jesus, which is our destiny, by the way. We've been predestined to be conformed into the very image of Christ. Now, the third aspect of justification is glorification. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, you have a verse that says, um, and those whom God justified or declared not guilty on the basis of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, he will also glorify. Now, we have a part of that glory right now. We, ha we actually have a part of that glory right now which is um, that did the glory of God, the presence of God, was it manifest in the tabernacle? And the answer is yes. It was manifest at different times and in different ways. God made himself known. And today, the tabernacles of which that he dwells in are tabernacles that are made out of flesh and blood. And so we have in part the glory of God manifested individually in the lives of individuals through the presence and power of his spirit. And then corporately, his glory is magnified in the community. You know, it's like smoke rising up. We might not see it, but we should see a difference, like a, a, a presence of God, a, a smell is another way that God puts it that we are an aroma of Christ to those who are being saved and to those who are not. Actually, sometimes we stink to people in a good way and sometimes we stink in a bad way. So I'm not going to be talking about uh, necessarily the justification part of, 
of repentance. Hebrews actually talks about that. It's an interesting passage. He says in, uh, at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 6, he says, oh, we're not going to return to the basic things like the laying on of hands and repentance from dead works. Uh, um, I, I do believe that, and I'll get into it in a minute, that repentance is necessary for salvation. But I want to focus in on the sanctification part. There is a day coming when we will be glorified. Everyone will be raised from the dead. Jesus said, I will call forth everyone from the grave. And, and he will present the church. Um, the church will be presented without spot or without wrinkle or any such thing. We don't know what we will be like, it's, uh, John said, but we know that when we see him, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. There is a day coming when God is going to glorify us in all of his splendor in the resurrection, or Jesus called it, in the age to come. All right, so let's, let's look at a definition of repentance. The Greek word is metaneo, and it means specifically to rethink or to change your mind. To rethink or to change your mind, okay? And I think it has a twofold process to it. Number one, it's an internal change of mind that, two, leads to an external way of living. It's an internal change of mind that leads to an external way of living. You can't have true biblical repentance like the Bible talks about if you just have one or the other. Is it possible to have one or the other? Absolutely. If you have just the ascension of, of mind, like, yes, I'm living in this way, and yes, I agree that that's wrong, and yet there's no change of heart at all. There's no change. All you're doing is, it's like an intellectual ascent. In fact, for a time, you can live even in the community of faith for a while and fool people um, with that sort of living, but it's kind of like a hypocrisy thing. And the Bible clearly condemns that, like in the book of Amos. And there's other passages that clearly say, I know this is crazy, but I was telling our kids this week at youth group that um, you can come to church and you can sing songs and God is not pleased with the singing because he's looking at the heart. And if you're not living in a way that is honoring him, if you have, if you have unrepented sin in your life or God has pointed something out and you're just ignoring him on that, it's not that he's going to receive your praise. And so you can be external and, and uh, it, you can have an internal change of mind that doesn't change it. You, you can try and fool horizontally, but not God. And then the second one, uh, just external living without an internal change of mind, that's Phariseeism. That's moralistic religion. That's, that's the idea of trying to live out the law, but having no real uh, knowledge of God himself in our lives at all. Jesus actually condemns this a lot in the, in the Gospels. One of the ways that he does it, which is very graphic, is he told the Pharisees, you guys are like whitewashed tombs. You're like, you're like a, a grave that's been painted really nice. Spring came out, winter's gone, got the paint out, got the roller out, painted the tomb real nice, and you look all nice on the outside, but on the inside you're filled with dead men's bones. And so that's condemned all through Jesus' teaching. The topic of repentance is not talked about very much. I think it even though it permeates both the Old Testament and the New Testament, both um, for several reasons. I, I just think it's hard. It's a hard topic. It's a difficult topic. We don't like to deal with it. Um, frequently, we like to hide. And then there's also some ideas around it, too, um, theologically. But I, I, in general, I think it's just ignored. It's just basically ignored. I remember um, when I first came to faith in Christ and you know, hearing the gospel, and I wanted to become more effective at sharing the good news with people. And I remember reading through the, the gospels and saying, well, this is how Jesus taught to teach the gospel. And what I was being taught, the way that I was being taught to teach the gospel, wasn't like Jesus. 
And I was like, well, did Pentecost change this then? Is that what happened? I mean, because there's a significant change between what he taught the 70 that he sent out two by two and how they were to go out to declare the gospel into what I was hearing, which was basically, don't you want to get, don't you want to know that when you die, you'll go to heaven? Then, you know, all you need to do is believe in Jesus and then you'll know that when you die, you'll go to heaven. And, um, that's not what Jesus actually taught his disciples in the way that, and so I was trying to, to get through that a little bit, but it's not, it's not talked about very much. I'll tell you another thing though. In 1 Peter, it says that repentance is at the heart of God for all people. It says that God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but what? That all should come to faith? No, it says that all should come to repentance. God's heart and desire is for all men and women on the earth, all mankind, to come to him and to approach him through the medium of repentance. And I think we need to have an understanding if we're going to be a community that desires to worship God in spirit and in truth, to have our arms around what this actually means. Many believers even are not making progress in their lives, and I'll say progress, defining that as the salvation aspect of sanctification, like God has saved me, I'm justified. God is saving me today, he's sanctifying me, and God will save me, which means I will be raised and glorified. Those things are all true. Salvation has all those aspects. But a lot of Christians aren't making any progress at all simply because of this issue. They're unwilling to grapple with the truths of God's word with this particular topic of repentance now, okay? And I'm saying that if you want to be a a worshiper who worships God in spirit and truth, we must grapple with this. We must take it on. We must look at the scriptures. We must let God's spirit illumine the truth to us. And we must let him examine our hearts and then move in a direction with the rhythm of which that God's truth and his spirit is coming. And by the way, that also takes into, into account that we need to know the truth so that we're not deceived. Because you know what? Uh, think about it this way. Do you think that uh, religious leaders, even preachers that use this book, have ever used guilt in a way to try and get people to give money or to change, to do what they want them to do. That's, we need to have enough understanding to worship God in spirit and in truth about the difference too, because the Satan will come and try and condemn you too. And there's a huge difference between a word in your spirit of condemnation and conviction. And if, we don't, if we're not people of the, of the word, living in spirit and in truth, we're going to have a hard time discerning the difference. And we can get all wrapped up around an axle for years, thinking that we're listening to God when in reality we're not. We're actually listening to ourselves or even to a demonic entity that's attempting to keep you from being fruitful for ministry. All right? So let's just do a, a New Testament scriptural overview in this topic of, of repentance. I just want to show you from the standpoint that this idea, is, a lot of people are like, yeah, we get it in the Old Testament. You know, God got mad at people. He'd kill people, you know, open up the earth, sucked them up, bam, killed them, you know. He stopped plagues once when a guy speared another dude for, for uh, doing this. One guy got killed just for gathering sticks on, on Sunday, you know. I mean, look what we're doing. I'm, I, I barely made it here on time because there was a triathlon going on. Can you imagine, like, if all that law was still in effect? People would just be falling, falling off their bikes and stuff. What's going on, you know? Oh, that's God, you know, that's what he's doing. You need to be, you need to be worshiping the the Lord. Um, anyway, so is the idea of repentance in the New Testament? And the, and the answer is yes. Who's the, the number one banner in the beginning of the Gospels that preached the gospel of repentance? Who was that? John the Baptist, right? I mean, that's what he came to do. In John or Matthew chapter 3, he says what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Make, make every high mountain low and fill in all of your valleys. Prepare the way for the Lord, for he is coming. 
Prepare the way. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Did Jesus preach repentance at all? Well, let's take a look at some verses. In Matthew chapter 4, from the beginning of his ministry, this was the gospel that he preached. Repent, Matthew 4.17, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, he took the message that God gave to John and he just carried it on. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Luke chapter 3, verse 3, and then I think he also repeats it a couple verses later, he actually says this, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, isn't that interesting? Because a lot of times what we focus in on is faith, right? We're focusing in on faith. And and did Jesus ever say, unless you believe, you will all perish? Did he ever say that? And the answer is absolutely. Both are true. Both of them are true. In other words, um, he would say stuff like, unless you are born again, you what? You cannot see the kingdom of God. You cannot enter into the kingdom of God. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever, what? Believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. There's tons of verses like that. And here you have verse, and there's, there's another one after that, where Jesus, almost exactly the same way, says, unless you repent, you shall not see the kingdom of God. You will perish unless you repent. So I think we need to get our arms around this because somewhere along the lines, there's faith and repentance happening, right? For justification and not only that, but also for uh, our sanctification. Again, in Luke chapter 15, verse 7, Jesus says, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Should that, should that not be believed? There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who believes than over 99... No, Jesus he doesn't use the word believe there. He uses the word repents. And not only that, but then he says, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who say they don't need to repent. And by the way, do they? Yeah, they need to repent of their self-righteousness. That's just as much sin. You know, but there's 99 of them. That's going down. So did Jesus preach repentance? Absolutely. How about did Pentecost change it? Did Pentecost change it so that it's just faith only now? Repentance is out of the picture. And the answer is absolutely not. Because in Peter's first sermon, Acts chapter 2, verse 30, what did he preach when he was filled with the Holy Spirit of God? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So that was the... That was, how many people got? 3,000 people converted in that day. And then he, then he gave his second sermon after Pentecost, and do you think he changed it then? He was like, okay, we got enough in by repentance. We got enough in. Let's see if we... Now we can be nicer. We can get away from the R word. And we No, he doesn't change it because in Acts 3, verse 19, he says, Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. So here he even ties in the fact that not only is repentance necessary to come to the Lord, but that there's something freeing to the human soul who comes to God and says, everything that I am is yours. I give it all to you. I don't withhold one thing. Well, okay, so then we have Paul, the apostle of faith, right? The one who writes most of the New Testament letters. It's all justification by faith and faith alone. Is that true? Are we saved by faith and faith alone? Absolutely. Paul builds a huge case. Our pastor Paul just went through the book of Romans recently over the last couple of years and, and builds all on that. It's all over the place that, that we are justified, we are declared not guilty on the basis of faith. Now, does Paul ever bring in the topic and the need of repentance for salvation? 
And, and the answer is, yes, he does. When he was in Athens, speaking um, in Athens, in Acts chapter 17, this is what he said to the people there. The times, of igno- the times of ignorance got overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to what? Repent. And so Paul is teaching in Athens to non-believers, God is commanding you all to repent. To believe too? Yes, absolutely, to believe. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So did Paul teach that repentance is necessary in the life of Christ's followers who are going to worship God in spirit and in truth? The answer is yes. I'm going to give you another one. Ready? Another Paul one. Again, in the book of Acts, when he was in Ephesus getting ready to head to um, Jerusalem, he was visiting the, the church there in Ephesus and telling them, I'm getting ready to go, but I want to remind you of something. I want to remind you that when I was here in Ephesus with you, I was teaching you all. I was going house to house and door to door, meeting with you all individually, teaching you of repentance towards God and faith in Christ Jesus. So what I'm getting at here, even in that passage, in in Acts chapter 20, verse 21, that's where that is at, you get a picture of how faith and repentance actually feather together. They're actually two, two sides of the same coin. Don't get me wrong. Faith is not repentance and repentance is not faith. But both of them occur at the same time. Real saving faith and real repentance occur at the same time. You cannot have faith without repentance. And you don't have real repentance either without saving faith that's turning towards God. You just don't have it. And the Bible clearly teaches this, although we don't like to talk about it very much. Okay, again, in Peter, and I already used this verse, but what? It is God's will... The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises about slowness, but he's patient. He's long-suffering, not wishing that any should perish, but what? That all should come to repentance. So even Peter's got it going on. Peter's got it going on. Now, the next thing you're going to say is, well, what about Jesus? Does the shepherd of our soul, the kind Jesus that loves us to the uttermost, does he tell us that we need to repent other than in the Gospels? And the answer is yes. Read Revelation 2 and 3, and there's some, there's some actually pretty scary messages in those letters to the church. But specifically, thematically, several times, he actually tells them, like in Revelation 2, 5, remember therefore from where you have fallen. You've grown, co- you've grown cold in your relationship with me. And I want you to remember the early days of our infatuated relationship. Remember from where you have fallen. Repent. And do the first works quickly. If not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place. And so, I mean, does Christ love us? Yes. And he also loves us to the point where he doesn't want us to stay on a trajectory that leads to death. He wants us to be on a trajectory that leads to life so that we're a community that reflects spirit and truth worship. Okay. And then again in Revelation 2.16, Therefore, repent. If not, I am going to come to you soon in war against the false teachers in your church. In other words, that particular church had false teaching going on. And he's like, look it, you all need to do something about that false teaching. And if you don't do it, if you don't repent and turn back, if you don't repent of the false teaching, I'm coming. And you don't want me to come because I got the paddle with me. And, and so that's what's kind of inferred in there, all right? 
And Jesus in Revelation 3.19, which smells and looks a lot like Hebrews chapter 12, says this, Those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. So, be zealous and repent. I'm saying that in the life of a believer, when it comes to the sanctification aspect of salvation, we need to be the sort of people that are zealous and quick about the illumination of truth in our lives and to embrace this aspect of repentance that is taught so thoroughly through the entire Bible and even the New Testament, and yet we choose frequently to ignore it. I have some ideas about that. but All right, so bullet number two. Repentance is not a work, but it is a grace that God grants. This is important. Repentance is not a work, but it is a grace that God grants. And I have a couple of scripture verses. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to what? Lead you and me to repentance. In other words, God is at the center of, of interacting. He's not aloof. He's not apart from the earth. He's actively involved, although invisible, actively involved in the lives of humans and his desire is to display his kindness, just like in Peter, and to bring people to himself through the process of faith and repentance. Now, this one I really want you to look at. 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 through 26. I have it on the handout, or you can look at it in your Bible. It's one of those verses that, that we should have in our back pocket, and it says this. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, and patiently enduring evil correcting his opponents with gentleness. Remember, this is Paul speaking to Timothy, saying, look it, you're going to have times when you need to correct other people. It's going to happen as a leader. As a leader in the church, it's going to happen. When you do it, this is how you should exhibit the spirit and grace of God. You should do it in a way that's not quarrelsome, but kind, patient, not evil, correcting with gentleness. And then what? Now here's and this is what I want to layer out of it, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth and they might come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. And what I want you to see there specifically is where does repentance come from according to, to this passage? It comes from God. God is the one who does it. In other words, um, when, when I'm living in a rebellious way uh, against my wife, it's, it's appropriate for her to come to me and, and to speak to me about my rebellion, but Reggie's hope should not be in my ability to change myself. Are you with me? She's not, her hope should not be in my ability to change or to listen or to reason, although I should be those people. Her hope is in God who has the ability to transform me and to get me to acknowledge what's right and what's wrong, and to embrace what is right and to reject what is wrong. Are you with me? That, that, that repentance is actually a grace, even as faith is a grace that is given. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace we have been saved through faith. And it's not of ourselves, it is a gift of God. And I'm saying, I'm building a case based upon some scripture verses, namely Romans and also Timothy, that repentance is also a grace that comes when his presence is available for individuals to connect with. He makes repentance possible. Our hearts are stone. We are depraved. We have inability. 
and Christ comes, the Spirit of God comes, the love of the Father comes, and He makes faith and repentance possible for us. And so His presence among us gives us or grants us repentance. And look at what it does. It leads to the knowledge of the truth. And remember I said, do we not want to be a group of people that worship God in spirit and in truth? In spirit and in truth. Leading to the knowledge of the truth and then having escaped, what does it say there? That they may come to their senses. Sometimes we go crazy. Sin makes us crazy sometimes. And we need our senses brought back. The way that God does that is through his divine involvement in our relationship with him so that we can escape the snare of the devil having been held captive. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be captured by Satan. I don't want to be hooked up by him. I don't want to give him a place. I don't want to listen to his lies. I don't want to believe his lies. Don't get me wrong. There's a part of my heart that still remains, my sin nature, that's like, I like some of that stuff. I'll be honest with you. I'll say, like, I do. There are, there are certain sins in my life and probably in your life that you get joy out of. And, and although you know you should repent from them, they're not necessarily easy to because there's a pleasure. It's difficult to repent from things that you find joy in. It's difficult to do that. But, but God can help us to escape even the snare of our own imprisonment. He can do that, and he does do that through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. All right, number three. What are the components of repentance in our lives? I already illustrated repentance is a gift that I believe comes from the kindness of God that God grants to people. I also believe with justification that, it's, that repentance is necessary. Not just, I believe in Jesus and so I think I'm going to go to heaven when I die without any transformation in life. I think the Bible clearly says that if you really have saving faith, your life will be different. You will begin to exhibit uh, the beauty and the glory and, and the love and, uh, and the presence of God. All right? For salvation. Hardening ourselves against this gift can have catastrophic results, both in our lives individually and in the lives of those around us. Now, let's talk about some of the things that actually, the signs or whatever, of repentance that are actually occurring. Number one, repentance is preceded by sorrow. I'm talking about real repentance now. Repentance is preceded, preceded, biblical repentance, preceded by sorrow. And I'm building this off of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. Paul, as a leader in the church, actually um, was admonishing the church, saying, hey, look, it, there's some things going on in Corinth that should not be going on. There are some things that you need to take care of that need to be done. Now, listen, I think he was probably using uh, some of the philosophy, and this is hard. I don't know if you've ever had this, but have you ever had to confront someone about sin? It's really hard to do. And Paul was grieved over it. It wasn't an easy thing. It wasn't like church leaders are all like, yeah, I love it when someone gets stuck in a sin issue and I have to go knock on their door and be like, why are you living apart from your wife? What are you doing? Are you a Christ follower? Do you love Jesus? Why are you spending so much time calling that other woman? What are you doing? I know that it's happening. Why are you doing that? That's not fun. Our pa- pastors and, and leaders in the church, they don't like, it's not like, oh, look it, I get another opportunity to kind of facilitate this stuff. And it's grievous, but we go with kindness and love. And, and he was grieved. And then this is what you get out of Second Corinthians chapter 7. He did that with Corinth and saying, you've got to change some stuff. This is not right. You need to change some stuff. And look what he says. Now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry. In other words, I felt bad that, that I made you feel bad. I did feel bad about me. And hopefully leaders who are loving God, if they come and, and, and we're, or we're one another, we're confronting one another, we feel bad about making one another feel bad. But the end game is sanctification. The end game is peace and righteousness, right? And he says, look it, I, I, not, I don't feel bad because you were made sorry, but I am glad not that your sorrow led you to repentance. Your sorrow, godly sorrow, 
actually led you to acknowledge that what I was telling you was right. And then, and then it says, for you became sorrowful. Look at, as God intended. God intends some sorrow in our lives so that we can repent. That's part of his grace and kindness of what's going on. And so you were not harmed by us in any way. And look at verse 10. This is the key. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. I don't know about you, but I want to live there. Don't you want to be, do, I want to be, not only do I want to be a person who, who walks in, and worships God in spirit and in truth, but wouldn't you like to live a life where you don't have a lot of baggage? Where you don't have like, a lot of regrets? A lot of, a, a lot of social decisions that you made that you've never dealt with in the past? And, and the Bible's saying that godly sorrow will bring a repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow leads to death. So worldly sorrow, it's focused on me. You know what I'm saying? It's like, look at I was, uh, you know, I, um, I was calling this woman, and then all of a sudden, like, my wife figured out that I was doing it and got into my telephone account, and uh, and then all of a sudden she's like, "What are you doing?" I'm looking, and, and whose number is this? And I'm like, "Well, it's Susie's number." Well, who's Susie? What's going on here? And all of a sudden I'm like, "Man, I feel really bad because I got caught, right?" But remember, I mean, what's wrong? I mean, I'm humiliated to a certain extent. But the real issue, the real, the, real, the real crux around worldly sorrow is I feel bad because my reputation has been marred. It has nothing at all to do with God. I don't feel bad that I was doing that and I was offending God by doing it. That's not the reason. The, the, the motivation behind it is completely different. I feel bad that I lost my job because I got caught stealing. I feel bad about it. I feel bad about it that I'm going to prison because of what I did. You see what I'm getting at? That's worldly sorrow. What's an example of worldly sorrow? Judas. Judas is a, a really clear example. of world. Was Judas sorry that he had betrayed Jesus? Did he feel bad about doing it? I, he did feel, I think he felt bad about doing it. Do you know why I think he felt bad about doing it? What did he do with the 30 pieces of silver? He took the 30 pieces of silver in his hand and he's like, oh my goodness, this is blood money. What I did was bad. And he took the money and he threw it on the steps of the temple. Do you remember? He actually returned the money. But then what happened to him? He went and killed himself. I'm just saying, philosophically, what you know about Jesus, spiritually, truth, what you know about Jesus, if Judas would have repented with real repentance, would Jesus have received him back into fellowship? I think that he would have. Now look at Peter. Was, did Peter feel bad about denying the Lord three times? Oh, yeah. And remember when, uh, at the end of John, when Peter was like, uh, or Jesus is like, Peter, do you love me? Lord, do you know that I love you? Well, feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you. Well, I want you to take care of my people. Peter, do you love me? And now it says in John that he was grieved. He's like, Lord, I feel bad now. I mean, you're making me feel bad. This is the third time that you've asked me. You know that I love you. Then I want you to take care of my sheep. And, and Peter, I think, had a real true godly sorrow that led to repentance that led to salvation for him. And ultimately, God used him greatly in the formation of the early of the church. And, and he preached the first sermon. So worldly sorrow leads to death. It's focused on me. Godly sorrow leads to salvation. It's focused on God. It's more like, okay, what I did when I started calling that person, did I sin against my wife? Yes. But I sinned against God first. And the offense is more between my heart and against God than it is horizontal. Don't get me wrong. There's some horizontal stuff that we need to take care of too. And I'll get to that in just a minute. It's focused on God and what he's trying to do in my life. It initiates transformation. 
It, it, it comes along with the presence and power of the Holy Spirit to say, I'm driving a stake in right now and I want to change. I want to turn away from this and towards the cross. I want to be a cross-centered Christ follower. All right? That's godly sorrow. This does not mean that there's no consequences to the choices that we make. This does not mean that, um, that if there's true repentance and faith in our lives, uh, it does mean that we are living a redeemed life, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we escape from the, 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 the fruit of the decisions that we've made. Um, Paul, when he was writing to Timothy, um, he was boasting in God, saying, I'm thankful about what Christ has done in my life. He has given me strength. He considered me faithful. He appointed me as a minister. But don't forget, I was a blasphemer. I was violent. I was, I was persecuting the church. And so what he's saying is, is that I still live with all of those things, but the redemption that is in Christ, now the focus is not on those bad things any longer, but it's on the fact that I am now being put on display that if I lived like this and God has redeemed me, He can redeem you too. He can redeem you too. And now the focus is not about the life any longer. The focus is on God. Repentance leads to confession. All right. So uh, the first part there was repentance is preceded by sorrow. The next part is repentance leads to confession. This is seeing our circumstances and our heart issues and, and the things around us from God's perspective. It's being able to agree with God. That's what confession is agree with God when he illustrates and put his finger on something and say, yeah, I agree with you. You're right about that. It's seeing things from God's perspective. Okay? It's not just labeling something as wrong. We're, it's, it's a place where we're like, okay, God, I'm done hiding. I'm not hiding any longer. I'm not hiding my sin. I'm not going to pretend. I want to get engaged with you and I want to get engaged with real community. And so I'm going to agree with you. I am not going to live as a hypocrite. Hypocrite. I'm going to agree with you when you put your finger on something. I want to commune with you about it. What scares me sometimes is this. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but I'm just being real transparent. There are times in my life where I embrace sin and I don't feel bad about it. Do you know what I'm saying? I'm like, I can confess. I can be like, even in, even in a new transformed life, for a while, I can be like, you know, I, I'm getting some joy out of this. I'm getting some joy out of this. And that's a little bit scary to me. But we need to agree with him. We confess that it is wrong, okay? And then the last thing is, repentance leads to restitution. This should be a core component in the church. And I'm telling you, this is, at least in my experience, is mega lacking for the most part. It's mega lacking. It's mega lacking in our homes. It's mega lacking in church. I grew up around uh, self-help programs, you know, like, uh, I won't name any, but self-help. And they have like a list, like 12 steps. I don't know if you guys have ever been exposed to the 12 steps, one of the steps in those programs is to actually make a list of everyone that you have ever offended. They have to do it. They get a sponsor. People get a sponsor. And they're like, look, you're on this step right now. And this is going to be hard, but you need to make a list of everyone that you've ever offended, and you're going to try and go and make amends with every one of them. That's part of your healing, and you need to do it. Now, this, is a, this isn't even in the church. This is not the church. This is a self-help program. Okay? And, and they're getting it right. And... and and yet we frequently, um, we don't get this right at all. But restitution, going and, and making amends, is a biblical value. They, they actually are on track with right biblical thinking. They're on track, and it does work. It helps them. 
It helps them to progress in their, in their horizontal relationships. I'm going to get this out of Matthew chapter 5, verses 22 through 24, who says, where Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable for judgment, but whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come after your gift. I'm saying that reconciliation should be at the heart of who we are. It should be at the heart of who we are as a truth, a spiritual truth living entity community. And yet frequently we, we don't get this going down. Um, Another great example is, is David with Bathsheba. And this is an example of the whole illustration of repentance. Are you with me? Because, you know, it, it, it's the time for the kings to go out the war. He stays home. Bathsheba's out bathing naked on her roof. His, his uh, uh, castle is higher, whatever that. And, uh, and he sees her. He's like, I want that one. And so she comes over. He uses his position, brings her into his bed. You know, she gets pregnant. What, what's going to happen now? What does he do? Hey, uh, okay, we're going to have a baby together. Okay, I'm bringing Uriah home. So then he, he, he delves this into this, this you know the, what happens, right? What was plan A? Plan A was bring Uriah home and then just be like, you know how beautiful your wife is? Man, she's just beautiful. And, you know, you're here in the city, you know, you should go and, and you, should, you should enjoy your relationship with your wife. And Uriah's like, no, man. All of my people are out there on the battlefield. I'm not going to enjoy the pleasures of my marital bed with my wife until we win this battle for you. And when I come home, we'll have a celebration then. And then what happened? What was point number two? So get out the wine. So then he's like, all right, well, maybe we can lower his, his uh, inhibitions by getting him drunk. So they, he gets him drunk. And then he's like, man, isn't your wife looking good now? And he still just sleeps by, the, by um, the gate, and he won't go. And then what does he do? He writes the letter and says, all right, uh, put your eye out the front, pull away. And, and so he effectively kills him. Now, I've said this before, but put yourself in the position of, of um, Bathsheba's parents if they were still alive. How about Bathsheba's dad? You know, the king actually uses his position to, to basically um, rape his daughter, I think. He uses his position to do that. I don't know if she's willing or not, but in either case, he used his position to do it and to do what was wrong and then ultimately killed the son-in-law, you know, kills him. And then, you know what ends up happening? We even have a VeggieTales story about it, right? I love my duck, you know? I love my duck. Da, 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 da. I love my duck. And, and, and uh, Nathan comes and tells him the story about the sheeps. You, don't, you guys remember the VeggieTales? Oh, it's, it's a story about um, the, this duck, you know? And, and this one, the king has all these ducks, and then there's just one little guy with one duck, basically. And he wants that duck, and so he, he moves mountains to steal the other person's duck. And it's, it's just a, another parable of the story of David, but... Um, with, with squeaky ducks rather than, you know, people dying, um, which is a little bit nicer for kids to absorb, I suppose. Um, it's, all, it's always amazing to me, sidebar, but Noah's, the story of Noah's Ark, that's a gruesome story. It's incredibly sad. It, it's, not, it's not like a fluffy story that, you know, you put murals up in children's areas and stuff. It's like, if, they, if you really want to focus on the truth of what that story is about, it's incredibly sad. God was sorry that he had made man. I mean, that's really what the Ark is about. I mean, it's not a happy story about elephants and, and giraffes and stuff. Anyway, another, that's sidebar. Um, so uh, so he, Nathan comes and he tells the story that there was a man that had all these sheep and there was another guy that just had one and his friend comes over and wants to have a party so he goes and kills the other guy's sheep and, David, and he's like, what, what should we do? Bring him in here. He needs to die. You're the man! You are it! You are the man! 
And so David actually knows that he, should David have died, I'm telling you, it was unjust to leave David alive and ruling after what he did. It was unjust of God to leave him. He deserved death. People died for picking up sticks on the Sabbath. He committed adultery, which was punishable by stoning, and then murdered a man. He deserved to die. Period. And, and if, you were his, if you were Bathsheba's dad, or Uriah's dad, you'd be like, you deserve to die. You might be like that guy that was when, when Absalom tried to take up. Like, You're a murderer, you know, throwing rocks at him. Remember him? He died too, but that's not sure. Um, so they, they, he deserved death, but you know, when, when he repented, you have it recorded in Psalm 51. Did, did David actually say, you know what he said in there? I have sinned against you and you only. I have sinned against... In other words, when I committed adultery, I sinned against you. His first and foremost grief was one that he had offended God. That's godly sorrow. He had first and foremost offended God. And, and yes, did he make restitution? I'm saying look about it. We're like thousands of years later, and I'm still talking about it right now. And there's more talking about it today all around the world still, and we will until, the, until glorification. And you, know, you, you, think, you think David paid a price? He paid a huge price. One of his sons raped another one of his sons. Another son killed that son. One of his sons tried to take the kingdom from him, died, got his head stuck in a tree, speared through. I mean, it was sad. And all of that was because of what he did with Bathsheba. Now, um, what I'm getting at, though, is that did all of these aspects of repentance occur in David's life? Yes, he was a man after God's own heart. You can read about it in Psalm 51. And it's, it's well worth having that psalm in your pocket. The prodigal son is another place to look for, an example of repentance where he takes the money and he comes to his senses. He's like, what am I doing? He comes back with his shame. He's like, Father, I'm not even worthy to be your child. And yet, um, and so he, he confesses his sin and, and all of that stuff happens, all right? Well, here's the, we're coming to the end. Some responses to God's call to repentance in our lives. Well, one way, you know, I follow this guy on the internet. He's like a motivational speaker. I really like him. He, he's not really a Christian, but he's a motivational speaker. And he would say this, you know, that when you make a mistake, learn from your mistake. Um, I, I think the problem with this is outside of Christian thinking is that it, it has nothing at all to do with offending the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the Elohim God, the Creator God, but rather it's more just like, yeah, I want to be better. You know, the idea about I learn from, from mistakes, especially other people's mistakes. Um, and that's, that's not really a bad philosophy, but it has nothing at all to do, it has to do with your own arrogance and change. And I, I want to be successful in this world. I want to be, I want to be the top of, the top of my business. This is who I want to be. But it has nothing at all to do with offending God, like what, what happened with David. Another way to respond to God's call to repentance in our lives when it comes to sanctification is just to choose to override the Holy Spirit. We, we either reject him or we quench him. Uh, actually, the Bible uses the word resist him or we quench him. We can do this by turning up the volume of other things in our lives. I'm just going to ignore you. And the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to focus in on sport bikes. I like sport bikes a lot. And even though you're asking me to do this over here, so I'm just going to focus in on making enough money to get me a sport bike. And so we crank the volume up. Or, I like this music over here. So I crank this up over here. And, and what we're really doing is suppressing the voice of God. We're, we're quenching His voice. We're resisting His voice, which has happened over the seasons. We do that. We, we choose to override the voice of God. Here's another one. This one is hugely popular. We blame other people. We blame other people. So um, an example of this is... Uh, uh, you know, I, I, I'm walking in the church and so I step on 
Paula's foot. And, and it's totally wrong for me to do that, right? I, I totally just, I'm just like, bam. And then when someone comes to me and says, well, why did you do that? Why did you step on her foot? Then I say, well, I would not have stepped on her foot, except for the fact that she stepped on my foot first. And so because of that, I, I feel like I was right to step on her foot. It's appropriate for me to do that because of what happened. In other words, I can harbor sin in my life by blaming and putting blame shift, which goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, and saying that I am okay at stepping on one another. You know, you want to know a real big problem with that right now in the church here? Because we have a lot of churches, a lot of churches in, in the United States all over the place. What happens is we go to a church and we're like, oh, this is so nice. It's so great being here. And then all of a sudden, you know, we get offended by something. We might, we might not even know. The person that offended us, they might not even know that they offended us. So then all of a sudden, we just start jumping on people's feet all over the place. And we're like, we don't even know. These people don't even know the Lord, you know. And I'm just stepping on every. And then finally, we just disappear. And then we just go to another church and we do it again. We go to another church and we start all over. And then we do it again and we do it again and we do it again. And in every church that we go to, we never go back and make amends. We never go back and make amends. I'm telling you that... That's not repentance. You will not succeed spiritually with God in that arena if you're always blaming other people. Well, the church is just weak. They just don't know. They don't know God the way that I know God. You know, and, and, and you could do that. That's a, that's a way when God's calling you to repent. You could be like, hey, look at God. You know, I understand where you're coming from there, but it's not my fault. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, baby. They hurt me, I hurt them. That's the way this goes down. Old Testament, all right? And another way is, and this one's kind of sad, but getting absorbed in the sin and letting ourselves and Satan uh, depreciate ourselves. You know what I'm saying? What I'm talking about? Like when God's call to repentance comes, we are actually like, I'm, we hear stuff, or Satan, he's like, you're worthless, you're nobody, you're no one, God doesn't love you, you shouldn't open up the Bible, you shouldn't be in community with one another, you need to stop going to that Bible study, you need to stop praying, you're not worthy to be praying, you shouldn't even pray for like seven days. I mean, I've heard stuff like that before, even like, I don't know about you, but I've heard things like, you shouldn't pray now for, for, for four hours. I mean, real specific things like that. And I'm like, no, get out of here. Get out of here. I'm not listening to you. But, but some people can get so absorbed in it, so absorbed in it, just like Judas, it could lead all the way to death. It could lead to death. So we need to be a community that's loving one another in spirit and in truth. And then another way, obviously, is um, embracing the Spirit's call to repent, even if it brings pain. And I'm saying that from a sanctification standpoint, this is where we should live. We need to be a people who worships Him in spirit and in truth. And if He puts His finger on something in our lives, we need to be quick to acknowledge it, to confess it, to acknowledge that I'm seeing this from your perspective. Yes, I have offended you. I have offended you. And I agree with you. And now I'm going to go and make amends. We need to be quick to ask. I know this is crazy, but sometimes we need to just come up to someone and be like, Josh, I offended you, man. I know I offended you. And um, I've been praying about it. And um, this isn't about getting, you know, helping my emotional status to get to, to find healing. But I, I want to acknowledge that I... I believe that I hurt you. I'm asking for your forgiveness. Will you forgive me? And those, hard, those words are so hard for us to say. But if we're going to be grace-oriented people, then we need to be willing to take the risk and say them. And if you, if you harbor it in your heart, I mean, what is it doing to the community? How can we worship together? When you're thinking the whole time, I can't worship with that person. Look at that person singing. They're such a hypocrite. You know, they, they, they don't even know that they hurt me like that. You know, they didn't even know that they offended me. 
And we're not going to smell like him then. We're we're, we're giving the devil an opportunity for division and and other things to take place. If we're going to be cross-centered, let's really be cross-centered. Let's put the cross where it deserves to be and honor the resurrection for what it is and live this life for reals, not playing games with one another. It's not a social club. We stink at being a social club. Let's be real people. Um, Hebrews chapter 12. For they disciplined us for a short time, our fathers. I already read this, but he disciplines us for us good, for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Embracing repentance leads to salvation and a life without regret. I want that sort of life. I know. I hope that you guys do too. And Christ offers it to us. Embracing repentance leads to peace and righteousness. According to Hebrews chapter 12, his discipline brings peace and righteousness. Hearing God's call to repent is a demonstration of his love for us. You know that when, when you hear God do that, that, that's, that means that he loves you. I know we're, we want to repress it and we want to reject it or maybe even quench it, but that means that his love for you is incredible. We sang that song, you know, he is jealous for me. He's so jealous for you, he doesn't want you worshiping idols of unrepent, unrepented idols. He doesn't want you doing that. He knows how destructive it is. And he wants you to embrace him. So, so take that, even if it hurts, take his words of reproof as what they are, even in Revelation 3.19. They are his love. It's a demonstration of his love for you. Don't get me wrong. We can, we can beat ourselves up. And, and some people are really good at beating other people up. And that's not Jesus. And then the last thing is a warning. And that comes out of Hebrews. And also Hebrews is even quoting Psalm 95. Here's the hard part. Um, the verse says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. There may come a time when our hard-heartedness becomes so firm that repentance is no longer possible. I'd like to delve into that more. That's, that's like three or that's a whole sermon series. But what the Bible teaches, here's the warning, there can come a time when we are no longer able to repent. We are no longer able. Where we resist him and quench him, and resist and resist, and we are no longer able to repent. And there's examples of it. I, I think I put some scripture verses down. Esau is an example of it. He sought repentance with tears, and he could not get it. John talks about in First John that Christians can absorb sin at such a level that it, some sin can even lead to death, even physical death. I don't know what that means. I'm telling you it's a mystery. But I am saying that Let's not be the people that are hardened, stiff-necked, and, and, and um, genuinely need to be reproved. If we're going to live a cross-centered life, faith and repentance are part of it. By the way, this whole message could be given with faith at the corner. Are you with me? From, as, the, as the cornerstone. This whole message can be given with faith. They roll together. Faith towards Jesus. Repentance towards God. Peace. Righteousness. Life. Individually, as a community, we begin to reflect as a people the, the nation that God wants us to be. And we are an aroma to the world. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks and we pray that you would um, help us, Father, to be, when it comes to our day-to-day walk, to be quick to follow you. Help us in our lives. And I know you're so kind. You don't explore 50,000 different things at once. You're usually putting one finger on something. Help us to be people that not only understand repentance, but that we do agree with you. We confess it when it's appropriate. And not only that, but when it's appropriate, 
we go to those whom we have offended and we live out the cross-centered life all the way to the end. Help us to be the generation that worships you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen.